Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Today on the show, we have Vanessa Reiser, who's a mother, entrepreneur, life coach, and psychotherapist specializing in narcissistic abuse. Ms. Reiser is also a founder of the Rockland County Pride Center and a board member for the Center for Safety and Change. And Vanessa recently ran the entire state of New York in a wedding dress to raise awareness for narcissistic abuse and made international headlines. Here's Vanessa now. I am very happy to welcome Vanessa to our show today because there's a lot to talk about and because you're able to come at this subject with personal experience and also professional insight and expertise. So I like being able to tackle things from different directions in that way. And so if you don't mind taking a moment and just introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you want to talk about, and then we'll start the conversation. So I'm Vanessa Reiser. I am a licensed clinical social worker practicing in the states of New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. I specialize in narcissistic abuse, which is an insidious form of domestic violence. Started the practice last year. The home location is in New York and have fortunately and unfortunately been thriving in my practice because people are needing a lot of support for a variety of different reasons. There are clinicians that work under me. I have four clinicians that work under me um, and they are kind of working with a lot of anxiety due to COVID, et cetera. I specifically work with the clients that are narcissistically abused. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very important. And yeah, I hear you. Uh, you know, in, in some situations and in some careers, you know, for being able to make a living, it's good to be busy, but it also is kind of a gauge uh, about what's happening in the world and how much of a need there is for a particular issue. And it makes an impact on therapists when suddenly there's a flood. I've had it with people dealing with conspiracy theories and of course people involved in cults. And I also work with people who have been dealing with narcissists and that came from clients who contacted me and said, listen, I've heard you talk about cults. You were describing my marriage. Can I get some sort of cult deprogramming, so to speak? from you, but for my, my relationship with my partner or my parent. And, you know, and I learned from people contacting me who alerted me to how similar it is in terms of the methods of control and the after effects, the side effects, the long-term effects from it. So that's been a really interesting thing. So tell me about your interest in this particular subject. And by the way, congratulations on your practice growing to this degree and also being able to be licensed in different states. It's a wonderful thing for a therapist to be able to be accessible to people in different areas. So yeah, tell me how you got this specialization started. 
Well, I went through um, myself a very traumatic experience, and it was kind of interesting because it, my, I got my master's at USC, which is a formidable institution, yet never heard anything about these kinds of personality disorders. Um, I was very naive, very green, you know, and I went through this experience and I thought, well, that's evil. That's what evil looks like. And realized there was a need for people to receive services. And I think it's important when you're mentioning cult recovery. Um, if you know anything about cults, you know everything you need to know about a narcissist and vice versa. It's the same playbook in some ways. There's just more of a macro feel when it comes to a cult scenario, but this is a very micro experience, but it's really um, one in the same. And so we talked about you know, some of the nuanced differences between the narcissistic parent, let's say, um, and the narcissistic lover or interpersonal relationship that is a love affair. But they're um, very similar in that they're insecure, controlling, manipulative, um, and all of these other big, scary words. But so I got victimized myself and that's really what catapulted me into this work. Okay. So we definitely want to talk about that. Interestingly, I got my master's at USC. I hope it's changed since it probably has. I hope. I mean, I alerted the Dean to this. I had a experience in a group therapy class that was run like a cult. I had already started to learn about cults because of having a family member in. And suddenly I'm in this class and we're talking about personal experiences propelling us into what we do. And sometimes we learn in, in classes and learn in our life about how we want things to be. But also sometimes we learn about how to do it the opposite way of the way it was done with us and that that's our guide. Within this group therapy course, the person in charge would emotionally reward you and emotionally punish you just with looks or having you sit farther away from her if you didn't open up about your traumas. Now, not everyone has had traumas, but if you didn't share a trauma, you were ostracized by the group because that was encouraged by the teacher. This is a teacher. And you were also told that you were being resistant and you were withholding and you were shunned. And I remember, and I've, t I've actually told this story on the podcast a while ago, I remember contacting someone who was a clinical psychologist and a professor. And I said, what is going on here? And she said, actually do an experiment. See if you're right about how you're going to be liked more. If you suddenly have more issues, make something up. This is not your therapist. These are not your best friends. This is a class. Do it as an experiment. Just make something up. See what happens. So I made something up. I felt funny doing it, but it was sort of a good experiment. And I said, well, actually, you know, I, I did have this thing happen to me. And suddenly people were hugging me and the teacher was smiling at me and she invited me out to coffee. And I thought, wow, if this can happen at the university where I'm studying, where I'm going to be going on to do counseling and working with people who are in controlling environments. The irony blew my mind, but it was so interesting to see how it can get woven in to so many places, even places that you think are going to be legitimate. So tell us a little bit about your experience that had all the trappings of being legitimate from the beginning, I'm supposing. Yeah, um, I think I was, again, very naive to people being innately good. And I was on the heels of a breakup. And so I was particularly vulnerable and kind of blaming myself for the dissolution of that relationship. Like I wasn't loving enough. It's my fault. By golly, I'm going to lean into this one really hard. And uh, yeah, that was really painful to imagine that somebody would be able to portray themselves as very loving and histrionic. 
very like emotional and the love bombing was very intense based on a lot of resources. There were, um, you know, holidays and diamonds and fancy things just thrown at me. So I just didn't know. Now I know, but it was, it was, um, really horrifying, I suppose, and destabilizing to just understand that not just this could happen to me, but that there were people like this, right? So like, they're kind of like roaming around sans empathy. And I just found it particularly scary. And it was actually right as COVID began. So the world was really scary. And I had to go live with my mother, who is is a whole other trigger, a whole other, every reason for me even finding this kind of relationship in the first place lies there. So that was very, very hard. And so it was just like a rebirth in some ways. And I think most of us who go through this experience have something similar. You know, you shed a lot of toxic friends along the way because you begin to see who believes you. I feel like it in some ways is otherworldly. I remember telling it to people and it, would, it was as if I was telling them there was a UFO. It was too hard to believe. And they, and they all just left me. And I'm the victor because of that, because I don't need people like that in my life. I live in truth. I live very authentically. I curse a lot. I'm just piss and vinegar. And so it just, it felt at first very uncomfortable, but then it, it, it felt very cleansing in some ways too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was uh, compounded because the people who I thought were lifetime friends, and I'm talking about friends um, that I've you know known since I'm four, who were you know maids of honor, things like this, and they were not only not believing me, but on social media posting really negative things about me, siding with him, believing him. It was a big wake up call. I think what it really highlighted for me was that these people may have been holding some kind of a issue with me for many, 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 many years, long before this relationship. And so again, I feel very victorious that like that like was able to get uncovered. Right. Isn't that interesting? Pent up feelings, collected feelings, they do leak out in these other ways. And at these times that are unexpected and in the wrong places, which is really unfortunate. So, you know, you mentioned your mom. And if there's time, we can talk about how people sort of get corralled into being a certain way or having a certain role that they're they're expected to play or you know attracting or being attracted to certain kinds of personas I do want to talk about that there was a lot of um, inconsistency in her mood and so the highs and lows felt very normal so when the love bombing and the devaluing cycle began in this love affair it felt in some ways, familiar, I'm sure, that kind of up and down. I am trained in dialectical behavioral therapy and we talk about baseline. And when you're dealing with a toxic person, generally there's them building you up, taking you down, and that kind of creates that trauma bond. But I think as a child, spent a lot of time when she was down trying to make her feel good. So that was the people-pleasing, approval-seeking, codependent, side of me, just sort of fix things, fix things, make it okay. I'm the oldest sibling. I have two younger brothers, kind of the hero child stuff. So yeah, it was familiar, this sort of buzzing around and he seemed manic and eclectic and eccentric. And, and, you know, I thought, well, you know, that's familiar because that's how she gets. So, you know, maybe he's just right. Making excuses. He's just this, he's just this. 
I'm wondering also, because it's something I've mentioned, but I haven't really gotten into, I think, enough, this idea that we gravitate towards what's familiar. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that, just even clinically, why it is that that happens, why it is that, you know, so many people say, I feel like I married my mother or I married my father, What you know, why, why that happens as often as it does. Well, I think besides the familiarity, maybe there's unfinished business. Like this is probably work I needed to do. You know, like I spent the last two years sitting in my own muck in some ways, kind of figuring out a lot of things and listening to my body and and the trauma and where it is and what works to make me feel soothed. But I think for so long, it was just all I ever knew was that up and down. It's It just was just familiar. That was it. It was every, I mean, there was nothing stable about being with her. It was um, very uh, walking on eggshells. And when I first got into her house, she was fine. There's a side of her that is very calm. And then she's changed. So I was good for about a month and I was like, okay, I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm safe. But then once that switch occurred, it kind of rapidly went downhill. It was really challenging. Oh no. And what did you start to notice? Well, I am a 48-year-old professional coming out the window so I can pee in the bushes so I don't have to go by her in the house. Wow. Yeah. That paints a picture. Uh huh. It was pretty severe. I was so triggered. I, you know, I would try to see my clients doing telehealth and she'd walk in the room behind me, you know, no boundaries. Where's my stapler? You know, I'm, I'm a, you know, it's just very... (laughs) Very, very, very hard. And it was always this way for me in my entire childhood to sort of navigate that relationship. You know, while I love my mother, I have had a very adversarial experience. I could imagine. And I think also I picture you wanting to kind of push her out, push her away, keep her at bay. Because that kind of energy, you doing your thing, you're being your professional and she's, you know, where's my stapler? is she so self-focused in that moment that it doesn't sort of matter what you're doing and it becomes so important for you to find environments where you can just be focused and where it does matter, you know, where you can decide this actually matters and I'm not, I'm not going to let anyone interfere or sort of take charge of that space, but to have to climb out the bathroom window. Wow. For my clients, we spend so much time trying to even get them to safety. And when I say safety, these these are clients that are sometimes physically abused, but the ones that are physically abused tell me I would rather be punched in the face than deal with this psychological abuse. So I know that being safe is not about the physical harm. I know that the way I know the sun's going to come up tomorrow. So that feeling of not being safe was something that I really needed. I was treading water until I got into my house. So three months later, I got home and that's when I really got safe. And that's when it was, you know, I was able to put the pieces together, but it's the safety. I I always, when I get intakes, when I get people calling me and they say, I've been victimized by a narcissist, I always say, are you safe? Because yes, I'm divorced. I'm living on my own. Okay. Then, you know, I just want to make sure you know, that you're in a position to like move. Sometimes they're not, they're in a full panic. A lot of people are still living with abusers. They have children, they can't afford to leave. It's a treacherous, scary experience for so many of my clients. Wonderful that you're doing this work. I mean, clearly there's a lot of need and 
and that you can come to it with this visceral understanding what that feels like. You know, when we talk about safety, yes, it is about having an environment that you're in, also a headspace that you're in. I'm wondering about other kinds of ways that people need to get safe. Is it financially? It seems like there's so many levels to getting safe. So what are the things that people need to kind of reclaim control over and their power over? That's such a great question because the narcissist is in some ways faking power. So they're very actually disempowered, uh, scared little children, but they know how to be extremely intimidating and they've honed these skills for quite a while. So while I honor my clients fear, oftentimes there is a lot of bark versus bite. So they will just intimidate just because they know that it's going to suck the energy out of you and make you scared. So we spend a lot of time pulling the narcissist back down by reminding ourselves of the shit that they do. So make a list of things that are awful and horrendous that they've done. Then we make a list of the client victim building themselves up. So positive attributes that I really love about themselves, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. So we want to also break the trauma bond and get them into a position of power. The narcissist is allergic to power. So I love empowering my clients. Most of my work is not just clinical, but very life coachy, like cheerleader, you know, a lot of cursing and just, you know, let's do a kickboxing class. Let's, you know, really kind of get into the position of power. And sometimes it's hard. Like I said, I have to honor where they are. But if I see a moment where I can kind of pepper that around, sprinkle it around, I'm very busy doing so. Because I know the narcissist is allergic to this. Very interesting. I remember saying to this person who was so afraid of getting the lectures that she would get for hours and hours, and she would have to take in the information and respond and have just the right response. And I... And I said to this person, your partner who is looming so large over you, picture him wearing shorts, laying on the floor of Toys R Us, having a tantrum. And so he's less developed emotionally than you, and he can't control himself. But because he's bright, because he knows that he can't just pound on the floor of Toys R Us, he's found words and actions and faces and, you know, techniques. But really, at the end of the day, it's a tantrum. That that seemed to help. And I've sort of used that over and over. But it is still very intimidating when this person has had power over you. And so I'm wondering also about how you help people not be afraid of just this person's presence, even just hearing their voice. I think in some ways, a lot of what you just referenced comes out. So we generally vacillate between horror, fear, and like hilarious absurdity, right? So there's never really like this middle ground. We're always either really, really scared or like, can you believe this is like real? So when we're not deathly afraid of them, we're usually laughing at how predictable and ridiculous and stupid and chronic and absurd the whole thing is. So we try to get to that space where it's like, we're maybe even laughing and using humor as a coping mechanism to deal with it because I want to honor that it is scary, particularly with children in the judicial system. This is where we get very serious. And then we'll talk about skills and how to, in some ways, I don't want to use the word negotiate because I don't believe you can negotiate with a narcissist, but 
I would say even in some ways, be narcissistic and manipulate the system and play the game a little bit better. So it is scary when you have kids with them. Um, And I have to honor that because the judicial system is riddled with narcissists themselves, right? So they happen to um, gravitate towards certain positions and those are positions of power. We see a lot of um, police officers. We see a lot of politicians. And so it's no wonder that going into a courtroom and going up against somebody who might be um, very connected to the political scene in their environment and, you know, be willing to put on the waterworks, et cetera, and exploit that system. It is very, very scary. So that is the one time where we'll kind of just get really creative around how to navigate it. If there are no kids involved, then we have a little more fun. Okay. Two questions. Uh, This is something I've been wanting to ask someone who specializes in this for a while. Um, How to help people understand when after they've been put through the ringer by someone, how they've had to give up their lives or, you know, dealt with parental alienation, but on and on and on that they sometimes still miss that person and they feel sorry for that person. They find out that they're not well or their next relationship didn't work out. What is it? How do people understand that they miss the person who did this to them or that they feel bad for them? I remember when I was telling my son, um, I have a 22 year old son and he was at university, but sometimes lived with us. And I remember telling him after the relationship was over what I was going through. And he's similar to some of my friends was like, come on, you're telling me he's not capable of love the way he would dote over you. And the way I said it to him was the good news is you don't get it. That means there's nothing wrong with you. You're very healthy. And I said, the bad news is you don't get it. So you might get hurt by somebody like this. So we need to start talking about this a little more. So I would say to this person, what a beautiful thing that you care about people and that you see the good in people. There's nothing wrong with you. That's the beautiful way to be. But we need to talk a little bit more about clarity as it relates to personality disorders and psychopathy because we don't want you to get hurt. And then again, we'll work on, you know, making the list of things that they've done so we can really. And sometimes the cognitive dissonance comes flying back in, certainly if you are cohabitating with someone like this. But that's why it's so important to actually write it down, put it in your phone. Oh, I remember the time he did this, this, that write it down so that every time you feel weak, you go reference it like, Oh, you know what? I forgot about that. You, cause it's so easy to just fall back into this stuff. That list is, I would say one of the greatest things you can do for yourself. And you should do that with toxic friends, bosses, whomever. If you start to see a pattern, that's a great resource. Okay. So you said something interesting about putting it in your phone. I think when you're, I guess when you're dealing with somebody who plays with your head and who also plays with your conscience or gaslights you, it is good to have a record, something you can refer to. I know a lot of people will say, oh, just get rid of those things. That's toxic. If you want to, if you're keeping notes from your bad relationship, that's negative energy, et cetera, et cetera. And I've found it's quite the opposite for people because they have to hold that, they have to hold on to the truth about what really happened because it's easy, what, to forget? I would say hold on to it because you're going to need the screenshots for court. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was like, do not throw anything out because the narcissist has their lives, but you have your screenshots. Oh, please. I mean, I have a camera that follows me in my house all the time because 
I have to make sure that I am not being accused of being in different places, hurting different things. When you're dealing with somebody who is very malignant, they'll show up years later, you know, surprise, here comes a restraining order. You did this, that, and the other, because their supply maybe took off and they need to go and find, you know, somebody to toy with like a cat and a mouse. So I say keep everything, but it is not healthy to stare at old text messages if you have to go to court. However, don't throw them out. Right. I mean, I found when people are talking to me, sometimes they, in the way they tell the story, they kind of downplay it. I think they've had, they had to do that to survive uh, and to have things not hit them to the degree that they should. And so in their telling of it, it doesn't seem as like the words don't match the impact like they're still kind of downplaying it. And I wonder if that happens in court or even when you're talking to people and you're wondering why they're kind of giving the person an out or explaining it away. And maybe it is because of me or they might have been tired or something because I think that they got used to doing that. And for those people, it's probably extra helpful to have those reminders about what the truth really was and to what degree it happened. I think, you know, we would then, I would probably want to talk to somebody about sublimation and ways to kind of actually get angry. Because what I'm hearing you say is there's this like thin line between blaming yourself and blaming them. And so I would be very careful to make sure that they are understanding and disconnecting their role in this in any way. I mean, yeah, we want to build boundaries, sure. But the narcissist is not looking for weak people or they will take attention from anything, anyone, anywhere. Does it have a pulse? Narcissists like dogs, actually. Sociopaths don't. But they will take that attention from anywhere. It's just the boundaries weren't strong enough to keep them out. So they're going to go everywhere. They're just sniffing around. Who is going to fall for my crap? But it's not that there's anything wrong other than we would work on boundaries, just that boundaries, understanding, you know, how to listen to your gut. I think also in a lot of cultures, we have in some ways trained our children to really not really understand what their gut tells them and what that means. We're, we tend to have like more of a robotic, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And there tends to be this group thing. So we have to really you know, impart on our children to um, stand up for themselves, to experience things, have a voice. Right. So it's so interesting about that, about raising your kids a certain way. And so I would love, you know, to talk to you about that just as a, a fellow mom and how your experiences inform some of the ways that you are and that you have raised your son. And we can talk about that now. We can come back to that later if you want to talk about the, you know, the relationship that you were in first, but it is something I'd love to be able to hear about. Yeah. I mean, I think I had a big sort of understanding when I was with my mother and I remembered thinking because I'm a mother, I would never do this to my child. If my child were suffering and we're crying and we're really kind of on her knees. The only thing I would say to my son, if he were in that position is like, are you hungry? Can I get you anything? What can I do to help? I would never witness my child with a very thin emotional bandwidth and then give them a burden. So I think I did a good job with my son just in being very truthful. You know, after a certain age, we don't want to tell our kids at 20 years old, there's a Santa Claus. They're going to go, 
I don't believe you. You're full of shit. Like at some point you have to give, you know, you want to, it's fine when they're little, you know, there's certain things that you want to you know, share with them, certain magical experiences. But like when they start to get a little older, certainly I think particularly with girls, little girls is you want to sort of, you know, undo that Prince Charming stuff. You want to not really perpetuate some of the things that are societal, like, you know, having children is very challenging. It's not the Huggies commercials that you're witnessing. Um, You know, things like this, like give them some reality here and there. I think that that's um, very important. And I think it also breeds a relationship with your children where they believe you and trust you and know that you're a safe place to go to if you're telling them the truth. So that's what I try to do with my son um, is try to give him what I know to be the truth. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of times that people do need to share with their kids about what exists out there. I think without making them afraid that it's around every corner. And so how do you present it in a way where then people don't think that it's going to be happening everywhere? I mean, I've had to tell my kids that, that, you know, cults don't exist like on every block uh, because in my my field, it can feel like that is the case, but it's a self-selected group of people who contact me. So I've had to keep it in perspective. And so what have you taught, I guess, your son about what to watch out for? We look at data and, you know, the numbers are a little bit higher than I ever thought. So I do kind of imagine that it's, if I'm being honest with him, I will reference psychopathy as being more prevalent than maybe any of us ever realized, but probably the way I would talk about it is identifying behaviors or characteristics that a toxic person has, trusting your gut. Again, there's that word. And then also there are good people. So that's kind of a thing that we try to remind ourselves of. We have a really good sense of humor around the abundance of not so good people, and particularly in this political environment. But we try to stay connected to the fact that there are. And if you're if you're fortunate enough to get involved in certain endeavors, you can feel rather connected to decent folk. And I try to do that in my community. And I try to lead by example with my son. So that's something I think that can be very valuable is finding like a group that feels safe and healthy. Yes. And I, and I also am curious about in terms of people being safe and healthy, I get asked a lot if a narcissist can change. And that's often, you know, I want to come in with my whomever who has these narcissistic traits and I'm hoping you can kind of fix them, which is so interesting. There's this hopefulness because the good things are good and they want it to all be good if possible. What's been your experience about that? So um, it is never recommended to go to treatment with an actual narcissist. I would encourage a couple client like that to see me individually so I can assess because what the narcissist, the true narcissist does is just glean information that they will use against you later. So I don't recommend therapy with a narcissist. I treat narcissists and I see very, very small changes. Um, I feel it's my obligation to try to do what I can. There isn't data really that supports their changing. We measure it in millimeters versus miles in terms of their ability to change. Mm. The idea of working on empathy, it makes me think about a lot of different people who have been told when they were upset, they were discounted or put down or 
insulted or, or were told by their narcissistic partner that their tears were a manipulation. And so that to me is this picture of a, a non-empathic stance. I'm wondering if there's an incapability or just kind of a disinterest because then they would have to address your feelings and they don't want to have to. I think they're projecting in that moment. I think actually they're seeing you do that and they're like, well, I know how to do that. You're not going to get one over on me. So they probably see it more as a projection. They imagine themselves as having that ability. I think everything for them is about control and they see that as a way to control others, to sort of exploit and manipulate others' emotions. So I see that as a projection, but lack of empathy is ground zero for the narcissist. That is when people come to me and they go, how do I know? That's where we go first, because that is to me, well, that's the reason why I fled. It was the day I realized, because I didn't know anything about what it was. And I heard from one of his former victims that on that day that he was a narcissist. And I was like, all I knew was there was no empathy. And boy, was I right. And that's why I left. But that's really, how could you spend any amount of time with someone? I feel it's a very nuanced to imagine the difference between a narcissist and a sociopath would be somebody doesn't care about your feelings and somebody really enjoys hurting your feelings. I find that to be too close. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like if you don't care about what I'm feeling, I'm already like, huh? That mm-hmm. I'm already destabilized. Like, I'm like, what does that even mean? Right. Right. Oh yeah. Right. It's a scary place because then, you know, there's no safety in there. But I'm wondering also then, you know, it's making me think about all the people who have been with narcissists who were also in cults or in these kinds of treatment centers where they were doing this abusive group therapy where people are supposed to give each other a hard time and insult each other sort of for the enjoyment of the person in charge. That I think there there is this satisfaction that they got under someone's skin. And that that might matter more than the fact that a person is hurting, that they just had that power to create that emotion. Do you find that? Yeah, the power is the roadmap to the supply. When they see that they've got control over you, then they know that the supply is closely following, right? So they're going to get that attention from you because the control is like the pathway. They're like, okay, I'll give you an example. I have a client who she was gifted something by her narcissistic mother. Narcissistic mother is very vulnerable and covert. She's not very overt. It's very hard to detect, very benign. And when she enters the house every time, she makes a, a line straight over to this object that she's gifted her daughter. Um, and she makes sure that it's still on full display. Why? She, in that moment, knows the control is still there. And when the control is still there, so too is the supply. You'll do what I need you to do and you'll be there. Um, so it's very interrelated, but that control is the is the way to get the supply. They know I have my supply now. I had an interesting experience with a woman who wanted me to do a joint Zoom meeting with her and who a guy who was basically her cult leader who had abused her and who, who was still in control over her in so many ways. And you could see it in their interactions. She kept wanting him to apologize for what he had done and how he had abused her and how, how he had used her and still was. 
And he had this gift of gab. He could talk and talk and talk and seem like he really cared. And at the end of the conversation, she would say, she would contact me and say, that was such a good conversation. I feel like he really heard me. And I'm thinking, no, not at all. Like he used a lot of words and he looked like he cared, but I find, and I don't know if you find this, that sometimes it's not what they say because they know what to say. It's in what they haven't said, that they haven't said they're sorry. They haven't said, I promise I won't do this again. They haven't said, okay, I get it. Or wow. They just say, well, you know, I'm, you know, that that's really, um, you know, difficult that you're feeling this way, but there's no remorse. There's no nothing. And so I find, you know, sort of look in the spaces, you know, the things that are not being said, that feels more important some of the time. I love that. I think what I'm hearing you say too is very, it quickly turns into gaslighting because what happens is the narcissist will take you on these circular conversations. So they're kind of sometimes just throwing tennis balls out and it's like, there's so much happening. And I remember being in my relationship and, you know, as a native New Yorker, I would say to him, like, I'm on Houston street, stop taking me on avenues, A, B, C, and D focus. Like, so I would have to kind of like bring it back. And then I would, I would begin to stutter almost because I was misfiring because there were so many things being said, but if you, um, yeah, if you don't pick up on it, then, you know, you could find yourself in a situation where you're being gaslit. They're so good at it. Right. Um, so that particular person, she said, I really, wow, I didn't realize he hadn't said these things. Let's, can we have another conversation? He was open to it. I think, cause he was trying to convince me that she was the crazy one, right? That was his motivator, whatever. So I said to her, if you have something you need to hear from him, write it down, have it in front of you and notice at the end of the conversation, if he has said it and he never did, he just wouldn't because he just could, he either couldn't, he wasn't interested or whatever. He just didn't, didn't ever feel bad. And so that was an interesting thing, but yeah, it's like hearing a politician. Did they say a thing? They said a lot, but did they actually say something? And is it going to turn into an action step? So they might say it, but is that going to change anything? So I'm curious now to hear about your relationship that gave you the hard way, unfortunately, these insights. I knew something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. And I kept thinking it was this diagnosis or that, or, you know, ADHD. And there were things he was kind of like flitting about and it was only in the rear view mirror that I understood it. I think it's important to spread awareness for the buzzwords so that people can begin to see ahead of the rear view mirror, like what things to be uh, careful around. So, you know, the long text messages, you are my soulmate. I mean, the text messages were like, um, there were I, I, I mentioned earlier that I've done two Ironman events. So I would ride my bike every Saturday. I remember there was this one Saturday, he showed up at my house and he was like, let's go to breakfast. And I was like, well, I'm going to ride my bike because that's what I do. And I enjoy that. And it's a big part of my life. And, you know, he was sort of sulking. Oh, okay. You know, the passive aggressive bullshit starts, but I told, I was on the heels of this blaming myself from the other relationship. So I thought, look at how selfish I am. Let me just go to breakfast. I could go back. So I forfeited that bike ride for like a good year. I just was doing, I found myself now on holiday and it was like, I just changed who I was. I lost myself. I was isolated. I lost my friends. I gave up my job. 
I was working in the Bronx at um, uh, Bronx High School of Science and um, High School of American Studies, which are really amazing institutions. And I loved my job at the Jewish Board and I gave it all up. And I found myself like playing Candy Crush at 4 p.m. on a Friday night. I was just, I was gone. I didn't, I was not myself. And I was fortunate because I had a very strong sense of self before this. I have a lot of clients that meet their narcissists, let's say 16, 17 years old, and they really haven't developed that sense of self. So we do a lot of work on building, you know, purpose and learning who they really are. What are they passionate about? What are their hobbies and things like that? But at least I had that. Like I knew who she used to be. I knew I was like, she's in there somewhere. So I went and found her, but it was all of the playbook things you could imagine were there. And I mean, very, very malignant, like pop collar, cologne, you know, fancy cars. I mean, just the most cliche version in some ways. And I had no idea. Did you have this feeling because sometimes people will come back to the first couple of times of getting together with someone that they felt like they were almost on a drug that this person was so intoxicating. Um, you found that there's data that tells us that it is a drug addiction. I shook for nine days when I left, I was just totally trauma bonded. I was like a drug addict. I kept waiting for it to get fixed again because that's all it would ever do is just be like, boom, 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 boom. And I was diagnosed with PTSD at a young age from some sexual stuff. So I had PTSD long before this happened, right? So the nightmares, the easy startle response, all of this stuff was already in place. So this was like just so compounded. I was really in trouble. Like I was in a dark, 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 dark space. Thank God for my life coach, my therapist, um, the friends that really stood by me and held space for me, you know, my brother, my son, it was exactly that it's, th- there's no, almost no other way to describe it. It was like a physical experience in some ways. Mm-hmm. Something else that people will describe to me is having this incredible time feeling like they're on a high and at the same time, developing more and more insecurities along the way because of some sort of subtle messaging that you learn to ignore but still goes into you somehow. What's that about? Yeah, that's, uh, you just gave me the chills. That is where it's like so insidious because like who thinks like this? See, that's where I go. I'm like, who thinks to just be like, you're not going to wear that, are you? And then be like, oh, you look beautiful. Like, huh? The inconsistent statements. I'm like, it's so damn confusing. If you are somebody who is alert and pays attention and let's say literal, like I am, like I, I hear words and I believe that's what you're saying. Meaning, you know, like it's really challenging to undo that because it does become part of your fiber. I definitely, I need a lot of clarity after this because it was like very hard to unring that bell because everything was like, wait a minute, that was a lie. That was a lie. That was a lie. That was a lie. Well, I mean, I have a friend who was married to a narcissist and he pretended to be an attorney for their entire marriage. She, he never went to law school. <laughs> he would be like on the phone with clients, you know, yeah, you know, we're going to need the escrow. I mean, this is a guy who was totally living like, but that's what it is. The whole thing is a facade. There's nothing behind it. So what you're referencing is so important because it's tiny little seeds of confusion that become monstrous. When I ask sometimes for people to give me examples, it's hard because it's so subtle. It's hard to know where those ideas were transmitted. And so sometimes I'll ask them to kind of 
repeat a conversation or an interaction. And I remember hearing this one person say, I had told this guy that I was with someone previously who was very cheap. And I was always made to feel like I was someone who cared about spending money. And instead of paying, let's say, to park the car or do valet, we would have to park five blocks away and I'm in heels and I'd have blisters by the time I got there because he wasn't going to pay, you know, 10 bucks or in New York, 40 bucks right, to park your car for an hour. Then this new person said, well, you know what? Then here, I'm taking you out to dinner, order anything on the menu. And so she said, really? For real? For real? And so she found a thing that was kind of expensive. And then he started making these little subtle comments. Oh, well, let me see if I have enough. Oh, I didn't think you were actually like going to take me up on that. But no, 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 it's good. No, I really want to do this for you. That one is tricky because I'll tell you what gets highlighted for me there. The narcissist's relationships are all very transactional. So when you see somebody who, let's say, has a hard time receiving a gift or there's an overabundance of of them giving you gifts, that should shoot up a really big red flag. Because we spend a lot of time in session talking about gift giving and holidays. And this is a, a big moment for them to sort of witness that control variable again. So they don't do well receiving gifts because they're again, projecting like, oh, you're trying to control me because that's how they use that transactional relationship. So the gifts thing, the money thing we see a lot of. And so a real easy way to just avoid all of this is just get really, really financially independent on your own. Like Buy your own lobster. Just get your shit so you don't ever have to worry about these things. Um, you know, make sure you are um, covered financially in every single way. That is your goal before you enter any of these relationships because it's a it's a much better feeling to be in a position um, where you can make decisions and they're not you're not going to be manipulated with money. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that you're also not going to allow yourself, if you can, to be convinced that you can't be trusted with money. So you need to have them be the ones who have access to your money or the ones they're the ones who make the decisions for you. I have a feeling that happens. There's a lot of um, opportunity for sometimes the narcissist too, to use you for money. So being very mindful of somebody who's a freeloader. Right. So the narcissist can also be the one who tells you they need you to give them $5,000 just this time. No cry the tears. So you have to be not just make your own money, but also be insulated. Be careful to who you share it with. I'm curious now about more about the relationship, about sort of the trajectory, how things went, how long it went on for and what helped you leave? And you mentioned that there was this turning point. I'd love to hear more about that. I called my girlfriend after um, he was called a narcissist in my ear. And I thought, oh, should I have to get out of here? I would spend a lot of time in hotels. I would spend a lot of time in the guest house. I would vacate the premises often because there was a lot of conflict. It was very intense. So on this particular day, I called my girlfriend um, when I had just about had enough and she came over, it was dark out. And I said, I'm going to go in the main house. I'm going to grab my clothing and we're going to flee. Let's pack my car now. My car was in the garage. 
So I filled it with things that were very treasured to me. Like my son is old enough to have actual photographs. So there were bins and bins and bins of pictures of my precious child, my bike, my father's pachinko machine. I mean, things that were just really, really special to me that I hadn't been storing. I was tucking them away because I knew something was wrong with him. And I had this feeling like, I remember there was a whisper in my head, like, go get one of those, you know, storage units, put your stuff in there. And it went on for like six months, go put your stuff in there. Something was like talking to me, the universe, I don't know who it was, was like, not good, not good, get out of here. And I knew when I left that I had to leave in that moment because I felt this impulsive thing go, like if I didn't, he was just going to love bomb me again. And I would just fall back into that pattern. So I was like, now or never, let's go. (laughs) And then I got my stuff. Um, He spit on me, called me a bunch of names, bleached all my clothing, went after my social work license. And it was very, very intense. And I only recently finished with some court stuff. So um, as a matter of fact, just this week, did I finally kind of breathe free a little bit? I hired an amazing attorney who helped me and the judge was able to discern fact from fiction, thank God. But I was going through a lot of false charges and things that were against me. He was trying to discredit my work and make me obviously look like the crazy one, which is so unfortunate because in my work, a lot of my clients, they have trauma. So they present in some ways as riddled with anxiety and they have to try to explain to the court that they can parent in spite of this trauma. And it's really tricky to navigate because this fool gave you the trauma, but all they want to do is shine a light on how you are reacting to that. And I get very, very upset with that. I'm very careful in the notes that I will make for my clients to make sure that it's the language I use sort of highlights that they are well on their way to all of these things they're building mastery around based on this you know, reported abuse and things. So I'm very careful to use language that supports them and if it needed in a court. Um, but yeah, so I fled and it, it just became a very long litigious mess. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think I am the victor because I didn't have children with him. That is something that I, like I had mentioned earlier, is a major vulnerability that they just use to their advantage. I mean, you want to talk about exploits. Why I feel so compelled to speak out is because I don't have that. Like, I feel like there's less for me to lose in some ways. Right. I'm wondering too, just thinking back, what are the changes that you noticed going through physically, emotionally while you were with this person? I was losing my hair. I remember that. Oh, wow. I was pushing my own friends away. I remember starting fights with friends um, because I was being told untruths about, you know, this one said this, or she was looking at you, or she was looking at me. You know, I felt in some ways a little inflated in my own ego. I lost myself. Like I was like just blinged out with all kinds of, I was decorated in, you know, name brands and things. And I think in some ways I got caught up in it. I wasn't the grounded bitch that I used to be. I became a little too fluffy in my own head. You know, these, everyone's just jealous of us. We're a power couple, all this garbage. And in some ways I needed to be humbled. Like I said, I've done a lot of work with this experience, but I think I did change in that way too. Cause I was like, yeah, we're, look at us, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I felt pretty much hook, line and sinker for like a lot of this stuff. 
like the perfect prime example of like how not to do it. I never did move away from my child though. I know some women do that. They kind of the triangulation, the, the narcissist comes and tries to divide. That was always solid and still remains so, even you know, against his efforts to harm them. But I think those were I just I really lost myself. I did. Did people try to alert you to that? No. So annoyed with them. Uh, <laughs> but I remember entering a room and like people were kind of like, oh, they're, I, I, I now know where they were probably like, oh, he was just engaged to someone else yesterday. And like, I felt like, why, why are they aloof? Why do they seem they're not warming up to me? Um, and he would convince me again, you know, they're jealous. And blah, 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 blah. Um, no, they were probably like, what the hell is wrong with him? But yeah, because I was one of many, I think, you know, they were probably like, you know, not going to bond with me, let's say. But I was very naive. I didn't understand any of that. I didn't know that there was someone right before me, like actually whilst, like in the very first place for about a month overlapping. Um, So I didn't even know. I didn't know. And I wish somebody would have told me that. (laughs) Right. And so I wonder too, if someone had told you that. I suppose it would depend upon who told you, when they told you, if you'd be receptive to hearing it or believe them. Because I know a lot of people are kind of worked on to see any of that criticism as a sign that that person, not your partner, but that that person is jealous or that person doesn't really care about you. Yeah. I remember I reached out to one of his exes because things were just really weird. And she told me a bunch of stuff. And while he tried to explain it away, it still sat with me kind of was, it added to the whispers, which was good. So when things would get heated and and I would bring it back up, I could see it was less about what I was doing with the information, but I was he was probably in those moments realizing that I was going to soon enough be on to him. So the discard phase probably began. I only beat him to it. That's all I did. I did. There's nothing remarkable about me leaving other than I got ahead of it. But I think when I was like, you know, I reached out to her and and I, you know, he did what he did to sort of do damage control at the exact same moment, he was probably like, well, I better get out of here because she's, you know, well on her way to figuring me out. So I'm sure that that's when he started to imagine how he was going to get out of it. Sometimes people will say to me, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, this group has been totally, I've had a fine experience with such and such group or such and such person. And it's, because they haven't said no, or because they haven't started to pull away. And sometimes you learn a lot in that moment about the true nature and health or not about that person, if you're suddenly damned or if you're spit on. And so were you, based on what you knew about him, were you afraid of letting him know you were done because you kind of sensed what he would do with it? Or could you not even predict how far he was going to take his aggression, kind of his tantrum out on you? No, I had no idea what I was in for. I was still, as a matter of fact, after I left, there were still phone communication where I was still trying to convince him of how he needed to change. So no, I had no idea what I was doing until uh, way later when I began to connect the dots. I know a lot of my clients will say like, you know, 
I know what he is and I know I have to leave to your point. And they start to get their ducks in a row. I was not like that. I just was like flat. I just, something whispered like, go bitch. And I was like, I'm out. I literally, like, I just, I knew, I knew I was just going to get love bombed again. And I had been through some, through the ringer. So I was like, this is my moment. I have just got to rip the bandaid off. I don't know. Wow. And so then I'm very glad, you know, your brush with dealing with the court system worked out well for you. It's not an easy thing at all because you don't know how it's going to go. And it just extends the pain, you know, you just have to keep dealing with this person and dealing with them trying to get you back for what, you know, for saying goodbye, basically. In the work that I'm doing and the run that I did across New York State, I think it really it was too important. The stakes are too high. So it was too important. It was very important for me to um, shut up in in his opinion. So it was, he was going to go very hard to make that happen. But again, I just feel, I mean, I would cry to my son some days when I was really being tested and it was like, I mean, yeah, I guess I could just shut up, but then I can't, you know, change the world with the work I'm doing. And like, how do I not do the work I'm doing, knowing what I know? Can you imagine? I mean, so I have a little bit of a, like, I have no choice. Like, I'm going to have to lean into this and just be a soldier in some ways, because what's my excuse? I have to provide the services. You know, I was thinking about getting a PhD and I was talking to PhDs about, you know, getting doctorate and they were like, just go get licensed in every state. And so that was, became the new mission was to provide the services. I have a nonprofit where developing a list of clinicians in um, different states that can offer clinical services, but you know, there's still like a, it's just an unbelievable need for people to, you know, be validated and, and understand that they're not crazy, that they're not alone and and give them some resources and skills. So I can't not do it. Teaching empathy, teaching care is so incredibly important. I think when people are experiencing so much now, I think about the, the generation of people, sort of my kids age who are, who are overwhelmed, who are overwhelmed because of having to do remote learning because of COVID or because of global warming. And, you know, thanks grownups for leaving this for us. And I wonder then if it, if those little nuanced interactions, the taking the time to notice someone else's pain or their needs can get lost when there are all these big issues to focus on, or is it possible to do both? I don't know what's going to happen. I think quite honestly, social media and COVID has in some ways worsened things. There isn't even a foundation, I feel, at this point for young people to connect with others in a healthy way. I was even thinking recently about starting to develop a curriculum where schools would maybe develop incentives for not using your phone for a certain amount of days or something and see if you could make it sexy and cool to like walk out the door and actually, you know, play a radio on the street or something like you remember when you were a kid and you just like, what did you do? You went to the park, you know, but I just feel like we need to kind of um, maybe because all of us are guilty of it too. So that's probably the problem is that we're kind of on our own hamster wheel with the damn devices too. But I think if we could um, maybe incentivize disconnecting from the media, which is also very narcissistic and unhealthy and get back into like actual interpersonal relationships where that connection, it's less easy 
to be shitty when you're one-on-one with an actual creature. So in other words, if I'm on my phone and and I'm on social media, I can be like, ah, you're a fat asshole. And like, any, I mean, so forget about it. Like the, the worst of you comes out. So it's, it's a little bit trickier in someone's face. So you're kind of, you're navigating like empathy. You're already like, well, I don't want to say that. Like this kind of this dance. It's like an empathy dance that we don't do. So we're just like, nah, like, you know, we're just, we're like unruly at this point. I feel we don't have those interactions. I never hear kids playing outside anymore. I don't even know. It's just a different world. It's not good. I, and I don't have any answers other than probably more like physical interactions. So just as we're finishing up, what else would you want to be able to share either about your relationship or how you get past it? You know, just imparting some some wisdom on that and how you heal from this. I would say, um, first of all, I believe you. And I would say, try to surround yourself with believers. Um, people um, don't always have to have gone through it. It helps. But um, I remember I went on a run recently with my girlfriend, Natalie, and there must have been a storm the day before. And there were a bunch of these chickens. They were in the trees. They were like low lying trees, but they were in the trees. I'm like, oh, that's weird. There's chickens in the trees. And I went to tell Natalie and I was like, you know, there were these chickens in the trees and she's like, okay. And I'm like, that's what I love about you, Natalie. Like I could tell you something totally absurd. And like you just hold space for it. It's really because uh-huh. I was not lying. So now we always reference like chicken in the trees. So if I tell her something like, I'm telling you this really happened is chicken in the trees. So you want to be around people who believe you. That's really important. You don't want to have people around you that are kind of like, okay, Vanessa, sure. Like, why are you not over this yet? Or not holding space and not really understanding what that is like. Um, I would say this experience is very hard to get over. It takes many years. Um, It's different than I've had breakups. This is not my first rodeo, but I never went through anything like this before. So, you know, unless you go through it, you just don't know. So try to, you know, hold space for others, believe them. You know, if someone tells you something and they tell you that they're being victimized by somebody who seems like a a saint, try to hold space for that because I believe, I believe chicken in the trees. (laughs) That's a great way to end our conversation with chicken in the trees. I think it's, it's just perfect. All right. Okay. So it was wonderful to, to speak with you, to learn from you. I'm so glad also just in terms of the week that this has happened, that this is the week you're getting to breathe. I'm so relieved for you. Woo, girl. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's really, really really something else. Thank you so much for doing this. This is really amazing. And I just, I'm so grateful to have met you and I'm glad you're doing this work. Um, fight on so (laughs) I, I really appreciate you thank you so much oh you're welcome and thank you one more thing before you go so many of the people I work with have been traumatized, damaged, confused at the least by their relationships with narcissists. I want to thank Vanessa for taking us through what it's like 
and the conflict involved. Just the idea that you feel sorry for them and that you miss them, even though they made your life miserable at times, even though they made you feel that you didn't matter much of the time. And like I said to Vanessa, if you feel bad for them, if you miss them, if you feel like you owe them something, it says something about you, not about what they deserve, but about what kind of person you are, that you're a giving person, a self-sacrificial person, that you hold yourself up to a certain standard. And that to a great degree for some people, they sometimes feel guilty a little too soon and a little too often, which can go hand in hand with having a strong conscience. But if you're going to spend that energy on someone, make sure that they are worth it. If you're going to stay up at night feeling like you should have done something better or you should just forgive them or maybe they're not that bad or they did have a difficult childhood, et cetera, et cetera, then think, but what did I get? Not what still is my responsibility to give to them. What did I get from them? The good and the bad. Maybe I got very little that was good. Maybe I got a lot that was bad. Maybe I got nothing at all. When you go into a relationship thinking that you need to be the pleaser in order to get back, then if there's somebody who you're connecting with who's a good person, that person will say, you know, you don't have to do all these things for me. It's very nice, but I'd like to do some things for you too. You want to pay attention to what you're receiving as much as what you're giving. And if you keep giving in the hope of receiving but not receiving, then you want to stop giving. There's a lot that we learn from these relationships. There's a lot that we learn, too, about ways that we know we're in this kind of relationship. Something that Vanessa talked about was that she lost herself in the relationship. That happens quite often. Your needs are not met. What you were trying to do with your life suddenly doesn't matter. Only the other person does or holding the other person together or making the other person happy or showing your appreciation of the other person. That's your focus. But there's another way to kind of find out what kind of personality you're dealing with. And it is that when you start to learn about the narcissistic personality, you can detect what they're up to. And if they notice that their techniques are not working as well as they did in the past because you're kind of onto them, then that will often cause them to either be aggressive towards you or discard you. What won't change usually, though, is their behavior in general. They'll just have a reaction to you having a reaction to them. They won't necessarily have that moment of insight where they're saying, well, you know what, she really called me on this or he really called me on this. And so maybe I need to look at myself and change that part of myself. They think, how can I punish this person? Or I need to get rid of them because they're not serving me anymore emotionally because my tricks are not working. They've seen me from behind the curtain. They say that there is nothing that makes a narcissist more angry than being accused of the thing they did. And for a non-narcissist, one of the things that makes that person more angry is not being believed, being accused of the thing you didn't do. That's one of the major distinctions. 
That's something to look at in a relationship. Who's getting mad for what reasons? That you're calling them on what they did or you're accusing them of something they didn't do. And one of the things, too, to think about is that sometimes we see people as we are. And if we find that we are good people and trustworthy and we mean what we say, we believe other people are good and trustworthy and mean what they say. But there are people who will sometimes tell us over and over again that we're believing way too strongly in their innocence and in their goodness. And they've given us proof over and over and over again. Pay attention to it. Start to write down the times that start to feel like proof that maybe this person is not as good, however you define that, towards you as you are towards them. Maybe they're not as honest towards you as you are towards them. People in these relationships often are so good and practiced at and used to having to forgive and forget that they really do forget. So I'm a list maker. And I think lists are handy for things like this. Start to write down the times that things just don't feel quite right and don't feel fair and feel ill-deserved towards you. And use that as proof. Keep it in a safe place. Use your own experiences and your words and your knowledge and your insight to guide you. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.